Please open your Bibles with me to the book of Mark. Our text this morning is Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 40, and we'll read through 16, verse 1. Let's pray that the Lord would be with us. Heavenly Father, we are needy. Gracious Spirit, we are naturally minded without your help. So it's in Christ that we ask that as the word here is preached and heard, that the Spirit would be with us to convict our hearts, to open our eyes, that we would not be those who are blind yet have eyes, who are deaf yet have ears. Would we see, would we hear in the Spirit? Because without Him, on our own strength, all of this is foolishness. Would it be made power to us in Jesus' name? Amen. Hear God's word from Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 40. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Thanks be to God. We recited this morning in the Apostles' Creed. We believe that Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell, and the third day he rose again from the dead. The word buried does not get much attention, but our passage today is about the burial of Jesus. Here, Jesus is placed into a tomb which is described in the Apostles' Creed as this hell, a place of the dead. Many interpret that word, he descended into hell, to mean that he literally went to hell. But we know from last week's passage that as Jesus hung upon the cross, he paid the full penalty for sin, bearing the wrath of God on his body and on his soul. So we can believe then that as Jesus went into the grave, his soul went to be with the Father as he told the criminal on the cross, you will be with me today in paradise. Yet his body was laid in the tomb. John Calvin comments, After explaining what Christ endured in the sight of man, 
the Apostles' Creed appropriately adds the invisible and incomprehensible judgment which Jesus endured before God to teach us that not only was the body of Christ given up as the price of redemption, but that there was a greater and more excellent price that he bore in his soul, the tortures of a condemned and ruined man. Our sermon today will focus less on the spiritual realities of Christ in the presence of his Father, having accomplished salvation. As he said, it is finished, as we heard from other, another gospel, while his body here lay in the grave, and we'll focus more on what Mark turns our attention to in this passage. A seemingly random assortment of people and their responses to the death of Jesus. Three women and a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin. And in their responses, we see their faith. And so our sermon today is going to focus on faith in light of a buried Savior. First of all, we'll look at the common faith shared among these, the common faith. Second, we'll look at the faith that endures. Third, the faith that acts. And fourth, the faith that waits. The common faith, and then the faith that endures, and then acts, and then waits. Let's look at the common faith shared here. There's no mention of the disciples. We've not heard from the disciples since Peter betrayed Jesus in the courtyard of the high priest. This passage shifts to focus on the responses of two new and yet very different types of followers of Jesus, those who are involved in his burial. There are these three women, and then there is the Jewish Sanhedrin member. And Mark, once again, for the last time, gives us this sandwich structure. He opens talking about the women. He moves to the story of Joseph of Arimathea, and then he returns to the story of the women. And so we must read them together and see how they interpret one another. We must remember that our passage here comes right on the heels of the first Christian testimony in the whole world. The Roman centurion, a Gentile, not the one you would expect, is the one who said, surely this man was the son of God. And the way that these women and that Joseph of Arimathea respond to Christ shows that this is not just a faith for Gentiles. This is not just a faith for a centurion, but this is a faith for Jews and for women, for those of high standing and low standing, for those of high repute and low repute. So far, Mark has painted the Jewish religious system in quite a negative light. First of all, Jesus combated the corrupt Jewish leaders and many of his uh, dealings with them. In their injustice, they condemned an innocent man to death, Jesus himself. The temple was judged by God himself in last week's passage with the tearing of the veil. The Jewish leadership manipulated the sheep who were under their care against the truth of Jesus, and so they cried out, crucify him. There was one glimmer of hope, however. You may remember in Mark 12, Jesus was speaking with one of the scribes, and the scribe asked, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus responded, and then the scribe responded that the most important commandment is to love the only God with all the heart and, with, and to love one neighbor, one's neighbor as oneself, which is far better than burnt offerings and sacrifices. And to this man, Jesus responded, He said, you answered wisely, and you are not far from the kingdom of God. 
there's that glimmer of hope to remind us that God has not given up on his people. And here we see Joseph of Arimathea, a Jew of highest standing, who is a devoted, true disciple and acts as a true disciple would. He was looking for the kingdom of God and he represents the remnant of the Jewish people that they are not too far gone if they will simply look to the Savior whom they crucified, if they look to him in faith. And so we see that Jesus is the Savior, both of Jews and Gentiles. It is a common faith. And these women who are so far unmentioned in the Gospel of Mark, they have very little social influence. But they are keeping an eye on things from a distance. Who are these women? Well, first there's Mary Magdalene. She is the one from whom Jesus cast out seven demons. And contrary to popular reputation today, there is no evidence that she was a prostitute. Sometimes we combine that with other stories and other women that Jesus interacted with. She was, though, the first witness to the resurrection, as we are told in the Gospels. That's Mary Magdalene. And then there's Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. This is possibly Jesus's own mother, James and Joseph then being Jesus's brothers. But it may also be Mary, the wife of Clopas, mentioned in John 19. So there's Mary Magdalene, there's the other Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and then there is Salome. Salome is the wife of Zebedee, or Thunder. Her sons then are James and John. James and John are the ones who had asked if they might sit one at Jesus' right hand and one at his left hand in glory. And one of the gospel writers tells us that Mary, excuse me, that Salome went on behalf of them to ask for their seat at the right hand of Jesus and the left hand of Jesus. These are the women. And there were many others who ministered to Jesus as well. And then there's also the, the Sanhedrin member, Joseph of Arimathea. Again, a member of the most powerful body in the Jewish world. And he gives Jesus a burial of honor in fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 9, which says that they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. The actions of Joseph of Arimathea fulfill this passage. Now, the graves of those days, of which a thousand have been discovered, These were rooms cut into the side of a hill with with niches on both sides where the bodies would be laid to decompose. And then after the bodies had decomposed, they would take the bones and collect them into a container. Joseph of Arimathea bought a linen shroud and wrapped Jesus in it, lowered him off the cross in it, wrapped him in it, and laid him in such a tomb. And then as we see in verse 46, Joseph of Arimathea rolled this large stone in front of the opening. This too was common. Large disc-shaped rocks were rolled in front to keep the impurity of death inside and to keep animals and grave robbers out. The women and Joseph of Arimathea are involved in his burial. Jesus had to die. Jesus had to be buried. And he had to rise. The fact that following such incredible suffering and crucifixion and death, If you missed last week's sermon and the sermon before, go listen to that about the death and the suffering that Jesus endured. The fact that he is buried in such a manner with witnesses such as the centurion and Joseph of Arimathea and the fact that he is laid in the place of death, sealed with a large stone, confirms 
the reality and the historicity of his death. This is no surprise, though, to God. This has been the plan of redemption since before time began. And it was a plan that Israel would be a blessing to the nations so that in this suffering and risen Savior, the nations might be brought in. Jews, Gentiles, the marginalized, the powerful, women and men. In his death and in his burial, the centurion and the Jew both profess the same Christ. They share a common faith as members of the one body of Christ. One of my favorite Old Testament passages predicts, prophesies this reality. Isaiah 19, verses 21 through 25, read this way. And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians. I'll pause for a minute. The Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians. You would think that this would say the Lord will make himself known to Israel. He has done that. But the Egyptians are the arch enemy, along with Babylon and Assyria, the enemies of Israel. But it says in Isaiah 19, 21, the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering and they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing And they will return to the Lord and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria and Assyria will come into Egypt in Egypt into Assyria and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. And hear how it concludes here. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. We see this coming true right here. The world powers, the enemies of the nation of Israel are welcomed into God's people. Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Joseph of Arimathea, the Roman centurion, the women who watched from a distance. No matter who you are, this is the common faith in Jesus Christ, common to all by which you might believe and be saved. This is the people of God that he has been designing and saving since the beginning. That's the common faith. And we see faith that endures. And we look to the women now to see the faith that endures. We see in verse 41 of Mark 15 that the women endured since Galilee. You'll remember Mark has traced Jesus' journeys from Galilee. And then as he approached Jerusalem and then into Jerusalem, and he's focused, really slowed down and focused on the suffering of the last week of Jesus' life. But even since Galilee, these women have been with Jesus, ministering to him as Jesus was about his father's work. And we find in Luke 10 an example of what they were doing. They were likely preparing meals and places to stay. And we see, for example, the story of Martha and Mary. Martha welcomed Jesus and his disciples into her house. But Martha was distracted with much serving, Luke says. And she went up to Jesus and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. This is likely the type of service that Mark was referring to that these women engaged in. And they were crucial support to the function of Jesus' ministry. Now, if these women were serving, 
And that word serving is the word from which we get the word deacon. It raises that practical and relevant question about whether women can hold that office of deacon in the church. This is especially relevant because our denomination does not believe that Scripture allows women to hold the office of deacon. And just last week in General Assembly, the first of three votes was taken to ensure that the title of pastor, elder, or deacon is not used of anyone who does not hold an ordained office. We believe that women serve as crucial members of the church, but they serve, here's a fancy term, ex officio, without the title, out of the office, because we believe God has reserved that ordained office for women. And that we understand from Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 6, we see the institution of the office of deacon. I'll just read you a quick uh, excerpt here from Acts 6, starting in verse 3. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. The setting apart of these seven men in prayer and laying on of hands is the institution of this office of deacon. And it is important to note that they chose seven men. And the qualifications for elders and deacons apply to specifically men. And while these offices of elder and deacon are reserved by God's design for men to hold, the mention of Mary and of Mary and of Salome shows not only the inclusion of women into the kingdom of God and of the church, but the importance of women in the kingdom of God and in the church. This point is especially poignant, especially in its cultural context here, where women were especially undervalued, to say the least. Sisters in Christ, your gifts are needed by the body of Christ. Not just in gifts of hospitality and serving as these women did, but in coordinating and music and caring for one another and outreach and as crucial support for the officers of the church and as nurturers of the next generation of the church. And there are so many more gifts that I have failed to mention here. What God has called you to do, do faithfully in service to him and to his church with dignity and value, with faith and with worship to Jesus, as Mary and Mary and Salome and many others did. Now, if we were to assess the faith of these women, we, which is very, it's impossible to do, we see that they have a faith that endures because for a long time they have been following Jesus and ministering to him. But we also have to note that they don't have, they're not acting with courage in these passages, in these verses, especially in contrast to Joseph of Arimathea, to the point where some scholars have pointed out that they lacked any, um, a, a vibrant faith. And I don't go that far because it's true. They didn't scatter even like the disciples did. The disciples Jesus had prophesied were going to be gone when the sh uh, shepherd was struck and indeed they are nowhere to be found. And they seem to have endured longer than the 12 disciples. And Mark's grammar in these verses indicate that they were faithful and consistent. They weren't just on and off sporadically here, sporadically there. They were faithfully and consistently ministering to Jesus since Galilee all the way to Jerusalem and even now into his death. 
But was their watching from a distance a sign that they were trying not to get too close to the suffering servant? After all, it's the same language used to describe Peter when Peter was looking on from a distance in the courtyard of the high priest, and that is not a favorable depiction of Peter. These women then are also looking on from a distance, but they did keep watch, and they did follow. When they were commanded to go and tell that Jesus had been raised, however, at the end of Mark, they were supposed to go and tell that Jesus had been raised, but what did they do? They were afraid and kept silent. So no matter how you assess their faith, you can identify with their faith. And I think that's the most important part of Mark's inclusion of these women here. They stand in the position of the reader and Mark is inviting you and me to look at ourselves as the women. We stand from a distance and we're watching and we see Jesus killed and we see Jesus buried and we will be witness to Jesus raising from the dead. How will we respond? Now that we've seen Christ crucified and buried and soon raised, will we respond in faith? Here's some things that we can learn about Mark's inclusion of these women here. First of all, their witness shows that God's economy of grace does not play favorites. This world plays favorites. This world thinks that those who make more money are worth more. Those who know more people are worth more. Those who are prettier are worth more. The economy of grace does not play that game. Because the world actually scoffed at the testimony of Christians early on. There were some writers who mocked the fact that Christians' first witness to the resurrection were women, calling them gossipers. Yet God chose women to be the first witness. Their testimonies were not regarded with respect in those days, but they are invaluable in God's eyes. Mark chose the true witnesses. And first of all, this gives us historical verification, but second, it reminds us of God's grace for all his children, regardless of what the world thinks of you. What matters is how you bear witness to Christ. One commentator rightfully notes that this passage shows us that the last will be first. The last will be first. The ones who were last in the world and in the religious system, that is the Roman centurion and and the women, these are the first ones to confess and to witness these acts of redemption. So even if you feel like you are last in the world's eyes, we can look at Jesus with confidence that there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for we are all one in Christ Jesus. In the economy of grace, We are all seen in equal eyes before our God. And these women whose names are mentioned three times, these names are the ones given. If anyone wants to check the validity of the story of Jesus who had died and was buried and was raised, they're the ones to talk to. Ask them. They saw it. They witnessed it. And they can bear witness to the goodness of their God and the resurrected Jesus. You know, as we look at their faith, we can also see God's patience. It's exactly people of incomplete faith whom Jesus chose to save. God holds out his hands to a rebellious people. No one does good. No no one seeks for God, but God remains faithful. He is patient with his people who do not dive into trusting him immediately. He, by his spirit, hones and grows and perfects his people over time. And as Israel wandered and complained and tried to return to Egypt and tried to turn to other gods, still God kept his covenant with those whom he had chosen from among them. And as Peter possessed faith in Christ as the Jesus as the Christ, and yet acted in such cowardice in the courtyard of the high priest, 
yet God was patient with him. And God is patient with you and with me when we don't have that perfect faith. And as we look at the faith of the women, it invites you and me to consider our own faith. Consider whether you stand at a distance from Jesus, whether you watch Jesus upon the cross and in the grave and in the resurrection and just keep going your way, or do you in faith act in grateful response to what God has done for you? Every one of us right now, believer or not, is in the position of the women. Like them, we've seen Jesus's death and from a distance we've watched his body go into the grave and we have seen that he did rise and we are commanded with them to go and tell others that he is risen, that he is not here. Are we willing to step out of social approval into active obedience to God? Are we willing to sever our ties with the world's powerful ones? in order to be eternally bound to the suffering and glorified Savior? If so, we have the hope of suffering with him now, that we might also be glorified with him on that last day. Thank God that he instills in his people a faith that endures, despite our weaknesses. Let's look now at the faith that acts. And as Mark is, again, setting up the sandwich structure, the story of the women, he puts the story of Joseph of Arimathea in between them to highlight, to interpret one another, and to accent, if you will, what it is that Joseph of Arimathea is doing. Joseph of Arimathea, uh, that name means he's probably from the town that's called Ramah or Ramah times Ophim, about 20 miles northwest of Jerusalem. He had come to Jerusalem for Passover. He was a respected member of the council, our verses tell us, and that is the Sanhedrin. But Luke 23, you have to ask, if he was a part of the Sanhedrin, why didn't he speak up when Jesus was so condemned? Luke 23 tells us that he had not consented to the Sanhedrin's decision. We don't know if that's because he was absent during the vote or if he uh, disagreed and voted against it. But either way, at this moment, he goes to Pilate with courage. Imagine the courage that it took. This is a bold move in verse 43, to go to Pilate, the Roman governor, to ask for the body of a criminal and so associate yourself, a member of high regard, of great reputation, to go and associate yourself with a crucified criminal. First, to Pilate. And he, he likely acted, Pilate, who had acted in protection of his own Roman authority against the so-called king, this Jesus who is now dead, Joseph came as an ally to him. And Pilate would have suspected Joseph then as a sympathizer with one of Pilate's political rivals. And though Pilate didn't think Jesus deserved the death penalty, he had acted for his own political sake. And so Joseph, by setting himself against Pilate, was, setting him, was not making himself a friend with the Roman governor. And also Joseph of Arimathea had to act with quite a bit of courage because of what would because of what the response of the Sanhedrin would be because certainly they would have found out about Joseph's action at the moment of the least strength for the movement of Christ so it seemed at the moment of the deepest shame for those who were associated with Jesus and with a dead leader Joseph makes a move that exposes him as a follower not a follower of a powerful, successful movement. 
but he's exposing himself as a follower of a failed movement. He becomes a laughable follower of this mocked Jesus. And so he aligned himself with a dead savior against his fellow Sanhedrin members of earthly power. He took courage out of his faith in Christ, even the dead Christ, and sought to honor his king and savior in his death. Let's consider some of the things that he had to sacrifice to do this. He was almost certainly no longer welcomed into the Sanhedrin. How could he be welcomed back to a council whose power is stripped from them by the authority of the resurrected Jesus who rose on that morning? He's become the enemy of the group that gave him power and influence. Joseph has died to himself. He has given up the world and taken hold of Jesus. His social honor and reputation were stripped from him. He chose to side with the rebel, the one condemned by the religious leaders and by the Roman government. Joseph has picked the wrong side by worldly standards, and no one would dare associate with him if they had any desire to climb the social ladder. Joseph has died to himself. He has given up the world and taken hold of Jesus. And Joseph's future looks a whole lot different now. Because he moves forward now as a follower whose life is filled with strife against those around him. It's going to be difficult to be dishonored at the marketplace, to be rejected from eating at those houses of honor, to hear whispers as he passes by, or perhaps to face even his own trial and death. Yet Joseph was willing to face all this. He has done what Jesus commanded. He's denied himself, taken up his cross and followed Jesus when no one else would. The disciples nowhere to be found. The women at a distance. Joseph taking action. He alone took action because he had faith in the suffering servant whose sacrifice paid for his sins. He surrendered his will to God. He was looking for Jesus' kingdom and not in a material sense. And he can pray. We can, we can imagine that he prayed with such sincerity. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Not mine, O Lord. I've only mentioned this briefly, but it's a huge part of this story of Joseph of Arimathea. Mark describes him as waiting for the kingdom. He was also looking for the kingdom of God. And that brings us now to our fourth point. We look at a faith that waits. This is a faith that waits for the kingdom of God. Joseph of Arimathea himself, Mark tells us, was looking for the kingdom of God. Many were looking for the Messiah to come and to establish the Jewish government against the military opponents. But Joseph of Arimathea, this, it means more in this case. He's waiting not for a messianic kingly revolutionary because Matthew and John describe him as a disciple undercover. And Mark implies the same. He was waiting for Christ to set up his kingdom and power. And Joseph had no part in ushering in that kingdom of God. It wasn't his actions that made the kingdom of God come in power because it was precisely the work of Jesus that is the power for salvation that initiated his reign. Because Jesus conquered his enemy and Jesus ransomed his people, Joseph of Arimathea has nothing more to do with accomplishing the kingdom of God than you or I do because Jesus did it and God will bring that kingdom to completion. But we do participate in the kingdom of God, as Joseph of Arimathea did. 
We participate in Christ's reign over the world and over his church. We participate in the Spirit's rule in our lives and in our hearts as he suppresses the enemy, as he suppresses the wickedness and selfishness within each one of our hearts. And we participate in Christ by being united to him in a death like his, being buried with him, and in anticipating the day that we follow in his resurrection as we already live in our souls in resurrected life. Joseph of Arimathea was waiting for this kingdom and he saw it come even as he laid Christ's body in the tomb. He saw God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. He saw Jesus given as a ransom for many so that many would be rescued from the wrath of God. He saw the kingdom come in the suffering servant on the cross and he believed in him. So now that you and I can look back and see this kingdom has come, that Christ is reigning, we participate too in that kingdom as we are united to Christ. We are united in his death, which is our death. We're united with him in his burial, which is our burial. And we're united with him in his resurrection, which is our resurrection. Romans 6 makes this clear for us. It says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. The kingdom of God came by Jesus' death and burial and resurrection. Jesus killed sin and dealt out his righteousness to us that we might live in his righteousness. So we participate then in this kingdom of God, which Joseph of Arimathea anticipated by living in the power of righteousness that Jesus gave to his people. By serving out of devotion, even when it means sacrificing our connection to the world. And it means we don't sin any longer. Because Paul said just a few verses later in Romans 6, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. So to live in God's kingdom is to see that Christ is ruling and to wait for him to return. To live in God's kingdom is to live in patience, a faithful patience. We don't rush God. We learn to be content with where he has put us. Our kingdoms aren't dependent on getting married, for example, nor on reaching a certain income, nor on having so many days of vacation, nor on impressing so many people with your intellect. We can't rush God into giving us something that he's not even promised us to have. We wait patiently then with gratitude for where he has put us, knowing that this is a part of his plan of how we exist in his kingdom as faithful members. So we don't live for this world any longer as Joseph of Arimathea exemplified. He gave up all he knew and he took on foolishness, which is in fact the glory and power of God. You and I don't exist anymore for ourselves. We don't exist to seek our own glory. We don't exist for our own comforts. I've quoted this before and I will quote it many more times. But one of my mom's quotes is, My life is not about me. If it is, then I don't know the Lord. It's about serving the Lord. 
We don't exist anymore for our good, but for the good of others. And we invite and urge others to come and find that same life in Christ. And we consider others as more important than ourselves. And we show them the beauty of Jesus. And we wait for the fullness of the kingdom to come. Because Jesus is returning. We wait for that kingdom of God. We too are looking for the kingdom of God to come in its fullness. Though we have seen its inauguration in Christ's death and burial and resurrection, we anticipate his Christ's return in the fullness of his reign. We long to live in that place where there are no more tears, nor sorrow, nor pain, nor weeping anymore, but only light. And the greatest part of it all is that we'll be in the presence of God who is that light. And we will see that in our reconciliation to God, we can behold him face to face without a veil between And we will find all good things in him and all our deepest joys and purest longings satisfied where we will lack no good thing for we will be with our God. That's the faith that Joseph of Arimathea possessed. That is the faith that we are called to have. I encourage you, keep burying your sin every day of your life, knowing that as you suffer well through this, You have the hope of resurrection. You will be raised in soul and in body to a life with happiness beyond comprehension. Find life in this suffering servant and in him alone today who endured the grave for you. Let's pray. Thank you, gracious Father, for this truth that Christ died for our sins. That as we will see next week, the glory of his resurrection seals for us and confirms for us this victory that he's accomplished. Would we die with him today that we might live with him for eternity? Sustain us by your spirit. We thank you for this word. Apply it to our hearts that we might be changed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.